We're going to begin walking through Jude's epistle this morning. We just finished up with our study of James, and uh, I don't know if I told you this when we were working through James, but James is one of the earliest New Testament writings that we have on record. It was written somewhere around 40 A.D., so, you know, seven to ten years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. James was written sometime after uh, Pentecost and um, after the dispersion that's mentioned in Acts 8, but before Paul went on his missionary expeditions across, you know, uh, the, the Mediterranean. So the church at the time that James was writing, when he wrote his epistle, was extremely young and not very well formed. Um, that's possibly why he doesn't mention some of the great controversies and great difficulties that they had to deal with and the debates that appear in later writings and some of Paul's writings. Um, James appealed to Christians who had been scattered abroad. In his letter, you know, we've talked about that. It talks about living authentically as a Christian and what it means to take on the name of Christ as a Christian. Faith without works is dead, and we want to have a live faith, not meaningless faith, not worthless faith. His letter uh, gives us some, a look into the individual life and how to live as, as a Christian individually. So James, he does address some broader themes of what it means to be Christian and what it means to be a part of that larger body of Christ. But very largely, the letter that we just came through from James is directed at individuals. This is what you need to do. These are, this is what authentic faith is to look like for the individual. And then, well, Jude comes along about 25 years later, Jude is James's brother, and he writes another epistle, a really short one. And this is around 60 to 70 A.D. Paul has already made his missionary journeys. The church is much more established. They've had to deal with some controversies and some debates, and they've settled those among themselves with, with the bringing in of the Gentiles and how, how to, what does this mean for, for Israel and for the Jews so they've had these big, broad debates, and they've settled these. At this point in the church's history is where Jude comes in and writes his epistle. There are thriving Christian churches all throughout the Mediterranean area, Gentile Christian churches. So Jude does not address his letter to any one church in particular, like Paul typically does. You know, Paul, that's why the, the letters are named, Galatians, Ephesians. These are to the churches in those cities. And so Jude does not write or address it to any one church in particular. He is writing a letter as it is intended for all the churches, all the Christians who are abroad. As we work through the, the text of Jude... I hope that you're going to see the difference between the context of James and Jude because I think that's going to play a significant part in how we understand and apply their teachings. James seems to address the individual and personal walk of faith 
in the life of the Christian, the faith in Christ. And then Jude comes along to address the more corporate matters, how we keep the faith and protect the faith and, and protect the church from being corrupted from false teaching within. So with that as our backdrop, what I want to do this morning is to read Jude's letter. It's not long, just 20 some odd verses, and uh, so I want to read the whole thing so that we have it on our minds. Jude begins, Jude, this is the introduction, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Excuse me. Once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner... These people also, relying upon their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing with the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones, to execute judgment on all to convict and all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Boy, what a powerful punch that Jude packs. Let me say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is now and has always and ever been under attack. Amen. Amen. That attack will come subtly. To be sure, though, there are much more overt attacks that, are, that outright deny God, you know, atheism. Uh, Scientology, any number of pagan religions. They are blatant deniers of the God of the Bible. But I, I believe that for the, the Christian, for the, the person in the fellowship, those overt attacks and those obvious attacks do not tend to be the most dangerous to us. The most dangerous attacks are the ones that are veiled in truth. They wear the disguise of truth. They are subtle. They take the truth of God and twist it just a little, just, just enough to make it a lie, but not so much that it's an uncomfortable lie. You know the analogy of the frog in the hot water? You all have all heard that? The story goes that if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll shock him and he'll jump out. But if you put a frog in, in comfortable water and just turn the heat up a little bit and a little bit, in a little bit, he'll eventually cook himself. The same goes for the truth. You twist the truth just a little, not too much, but a little, and the people will accept the lie and believe it. So the bar has been moved. And then you move the bar just a little bit more. People accept the new lie and they believe it. And then you move the new bar just a little bit more. And people accept the new lie and they believe it. And then you move the bar just a little bit more. And people accept the new lie and they believe it. And then Christians start saying that abortion is a gospel right. And then Christians start saying that homosexual marriage is loved by God. And then Christians start saying all manner of things. And let me put quotations around that word Christian. Because the bar has been moved, and a new lie has been believed. And the bar has been moved, and a new lie has been believed. James warns us about this very thing in his letter, the movement of that bar. For him, it's a rather urgent warning. 
He tells us that we must contend for the faith. Now, this is a call for us to fight for it. That's what the word contend means, to fight for it, to to protect it, to serve the faith. So it would benefit us to know what it is that we are fighting for, what it is that we're serving and protecting. What is this faith that we are to contend for, that we are to agonize over and defend? So I want to spend my time this morning looking at verse 3 in Jude, specifically the last part where he says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let us try to put some definition around what Jude means by the faith when he says to contend for the faith. I think that's an appropriate place to start because we don't go to war without knowing who our enemy is. We don't go to war without a strategy. We need to know what it is that we're going to do and what the objective is before we just jump out of the plane, right? Or we're marching into battle. We need to have an idea of where we're headed. So let's figure out what it is that James is, is telling us to contend for. He says, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now there are a number of ways that we can understand the word faith. And there are a number of ways that the word faith is used in Scripture. One of the most common ways that we hear it and that we think about it when we hear it is to equate the word faith with trust. We see faith is used to equate to trust several times in Scripture. Passages like Mark 5, 34, Jesus is speaking and He says to a woman, He says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Do you remember the woman who touched the hem of His garment? So, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith. That's, that's your trust, your trust in me. What did the woman do before she went to Jesus? She kept saying to herself, what? If I can but touch the hem of his, if I can but touch, if I can but touch. She was building up her faith, her trust in the Lord. Your faith, your trust has made you well. Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus, Simon, Simon, talking to Peter, he says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I prayed for you, Peter, that you not lose your trust in me. I prayed for you, Peter, that you not get your eyes off me, that you, you, you continue to trust me. That's a common use of the word faith. That's how we most often probably think about it. Have faith in something. Have a little faith. Have a little trust Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 17, verse 20, he said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, remember that verse? That's that's faith as trust. That's the most common use of the word of the New Testament, I'll be honest with you. About 80% of the time when you see the, the word translated as faith, that's what it means. It means trust in the New Testament, describing a deep trust, abiding trust in God, in the providence of God, in the power of God, in the promise of God, in the wisdom of God, a trust in the Lord. It's good to know that, but that's not how James uses it. James uses that word here in verse 3 with an article, the faith. 
He isn't talking about trust in Jesus here, though certainly the faith involves trust in Jesus. What he's talking about is the content of what we believe, the content of our trust, the faith. You you might call it doctrine or teaching. That's what we have to contend for. Right doctrine, right teaching, right belief, right thought, the faith. Peter said in his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul, excuse me, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said in Ephesians 4, 5, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now here, Paul wasn't talking about trust. He was talking about the content of the faith. He was talking about the same the faith that Jude was talking about. One faith. There's one doctrine, one truth, one gospel. There's only one. There are many counterfeits, but there's only one real deal. Galatians 1.8. Paul says, But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul says, I've already, we've already given you the faith. Someone comes in and tries to give you another one, let that man be accursed. He's preaching something different. That's not the faith. There is one faith, one gospel. So back in Jude 3, this content, this doctrine, this body of, of teaching was once for all delivered to the saints. Not in part, but once for all. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So there, there are no new revelations, church. There's nothing coming to complete God's Word. It is a a finished work. And others have tried to add revelations to it. You know, Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, Muhammad in the Quran, the New Apostolic Reformation, Prosperity Gospel, any number of add-on heresies that twist the truth of God just a little into lies and sensualities. This is the faith that was once delivered, delivered once for all. And the ESV rightly translates it as once for all. You can't add to it and you can't take away from it. And those that do are false teachers. The Bible is a complete, infallible, immutable Word of God. When someone says they have a new revelation from God for you, you better take two steps back and check what they tell you against the completed work. If it doesn't line up with the completed work, they are a false teacher and a false prophet and it should be marked as so. There is a faith that is a gospel, a truth, a doctrine of beliefs that is once for all delivered to us. And it is precious and sacred. It's important that we as believers understand this because Jude commends to us that we must fight for this truth. We must contend for the faith, contend for the doctrine, contend for the teaching, contend for the gospel. And if we must fight for the faith, it means that we must be guardians of it. And we'll see that later in Jude's letter as we come to those verses. 
We must protect the faith. Not, not because the faith is wicked or is, is weak. Not because the doctrine is weak. Not because Jesus is fragile or corruptible. Remember in Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of this faith. I'm not ashamed of this truth of this gospel. There's power here. It's not a weak gospel. It's not a weak truth. The problem is that the hearts of men are so helplessly and deceitfully wicked without the truth of God to guide them. And just like anything that has power, it can be misapplied, misused, misappropriated, even weaponized. And many people, many people will follow false teachers who look and sound like Christians, but the gospel they're preaching is a false gospel. This is common in today's time. It was as common in Jude's time. Probably more prevalent now than it was then because of the, the, uh, you know, the internet and, and our ability to just get content. There's some great stuff on YouTube, but there's also a lot of trash, especially when people who pose as Bible scholars. You've got to be careful. You can't just take what you hear. You've got to go to the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? The faith that was once for all delivered. What does that say? That's why I tell you all the time, we are people of the Bible. It doesn't matter what Jeff thinks. My job is to up here and to proclaim and to herald the Word. If I'm not heralding the Word, don't listen to me. I got nothing. I have no authority on which to say anything other than what the Word says. It's common in today's time. These people, they, they pervert the grace of God. They take just enough truth of the gospel to make it sound legitimate, but they fill it with self-satisfying, self-glorifying concepts. And as Jude says in verse 4, they turn the grace of God into sensualities. The King James says lasciviousness. We have one faith that was once for all delivered. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you that there's more to it or less in it. That's what they'll try to do, don't they? They'll tell you, oh, the Bible doesn't mean that. Even though it says that, it doesn't mean that. Or they'll tell you, well, you can trust this part, but this part over here is not, you can't trust that. that we don't, don't trust that. What, how, it's either all true or it's not. And what kind of foundation is that? <laughs> it's like our parking lot out here. That's what kind of foundation it is. I think when they laid the parking lot, they didn't, put, they didn't put rebar in it. Something's wrong with our parking lot, right? I mean, the, it shouldn't do what it's doing with the pivots and the dips and, and all that. You've got stone everywhere, and, and it's crumbling up. That's a foundation. That, that's, what, that's what the Bible would be if you could trust this part and not that. It looked like our parking lot, and that's a sad sight. <laughs> sad sight. <laughs> Let me tell you, God's revelation concerning the doctrinal content of our faith is finished. Okay? The church is built on the foundation of what the apostles and the prophets gave us. That's Ephesians 2.20. Anyone who comes along and claims to have a new word for God or from God or have a, a add to the faith that was once delivered to the saints is against Scripture. 
2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So we have a rock-solid assurance in the text, in the Word of God, that the Word of God has been given to us is the truth, and it's the whole truth, and it's the whole truth that you need for everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's the full, complete work. You've been given the tools to measure whether something that I may teach or anyone else may teach is the doctrine that was once for all delivered. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to wonder about it. Jude says it right here in the book. It's there in the Bible. So what's, what's the big deal about that? Why does that really matter? Why does it matter? What is the urgency that Jude comes to this protecting and contending for the faith? I mean, is it, is it so bad that people get a little bit off? Is that so, such a big deal? <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Knowing this, trusting and believing in these truths, one gospel, once delivered, provides us assurance of a sure foundation. So not just a solid foundation, but assurance of a solid foundation, right? Not just bedrock, but I mean the knowledge that this is bedrock, assurance that I'm standing on bedrock for my life. Are you building your life on solid ground? Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and he said, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if you love your mother or your wife, if you love your own kids or even your own life more than you love Jesus, you are not his disciple. Is that what he said? Now think about that for a minute. So some of you have been married for a long time. And that spouse that is sitting there next to you has been sitting there for decades. It's a person that you have been with for so long that you can't remember or even imagine a time Without them, this is the one who has helped you and cared for you when you were down and stood by you when others attacked you. This is the one who fought battles for you that you didn't even know were being fought. This is the one whose hand you instinctively reach for whenever you need to feel connected and comforted. The one whose face makes you smile. The one whose embrace gives you refuge and rest at the end of a long day. And Jesus said, Gentlemen, if you love her more than you love me, you're not my disciple. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I know that there are many people here, myself included, who have lost loved ones, who've lost friends, We've lost parents and spouses and children. And I know that that is hard. That loss leaves a hole. I know that in the aftermath of such a loss, there is an emptiness inside because they just kind of leave a hole in our lives. So I know that you know. I know that you know 
on a very real and personal level just how enormous this command is. When Jesus says, if you love them more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. If you've ever lost someone close to me, close to you, then, then you can understand what Jesus is saying better than, than those who haven't. Because the pain of loss will tell you how precious Amen. it is if you were to lose Christ. Amen. And you also know from the joy of having people in your life that you love and that you, you celebrate and that you cherish and the fullness that, that just another person can bring to you, you know through that joy in others just how deep and abounding your joy in Christ ought to be. Amen. Jesus said that he has to be more precious to you than your spouse or your children to the point that you would choose Christ over those loved ones if it came to it. Or that you would choose Christ over your kids or your, your friend if it came to it. You would choose Jesus over the things that you love if it came to it. When, when the Lord says, this I hate, but you say, but I love it, you lay that thing down because the Lord hates it. If that is the situation that I must live in to call myself Christian, then the one who I'm living for had better be a sure thing. And thank God he is. It had better be a sure gospel. It had better be one gospel once for all delivered to the saints something that I can plant my feet on, something that has a promise worth everything I've ever had to give up for it. Luke 14, 27 says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, that's another tough one. You know, the cross is a weapon of persecution. And Jesus told you that you have to bear persecution to follow him. If you don't, you are not his disciple. If you're not willing to stand for this truth in the face of ridicule, you're not his disciple. If you're not willing to let others mock you and cast you out and spit on you because of Christ, you're not his disciple. If you're not willing to stand firm in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints while they try to shut down your business... That's what he said, isn't it? Bear your cross. It was upon a cross that they murdered our Savior. And it was upon a cross that countless saints of God were tortured and killed for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I imagine that most of us can wrap our minds around dying for somebody else giving up our life, sacrificing ourselves, sacrificing a part of ourselves even to, to help someone else, someone that we love. We laid our life for our country. Well, at the end of the day, that's for other people, right? But to do this thing for an idea, 
to do this thing for, for a concept, to do this thing for truth, to die for facts? Is the gospel worth dying for? In the, the mid-1500s, Queen Mary is, and by virtue of being queen, she's the head of the Catholic Church of England. She had nearly 300 Protestant reformers burned at the stake. Why did she do that? The church had been teaching an apostasy that the communion elements, that's the bread and the wine that we take at communion, literally became the blood and body of Jesus when you partook them. So that Jesus was literally and physically present in the bread and the wine when you partook it. That was the teaching. So they took the Holy Sacrament of Communion and they added some weird teaching to it so that they believed that you could be saved simply by taking communion. They taught that, and, and there were many people that still teach that today, that there is real salvific power in just taking communion. That if you just come and take communion, you'll be saved. Just eat the bread and drink the wine, and that saves you. Do you know that people have the same kind of thoughts about baptism? That if you just go under the water and come back up and say the right words, then that saves you. So what they did was they took a holy sacrament, like communion, and they reduced it to a witch's brew. Right? That's what they did. And that is an apostasy. The Protestant reformers knew that this is not biblical. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Not by taking bread and, and, and juice. That's obedience for sure. But that's not salvific. Protestant reformers knew this. But the teaching of the church was that this was an alternate way of salvation. This was another gospel, right? It wasn't the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It was something else. It looked like the faith. It tried to dress itself up like the faith, but it wasn't. It had enough truth in it to, to deceive others into believing it, and it still deceives them today, but it's not the faith. It's not the whole counsel of God. It wasn't the faith that was once for all delivered. And so because they stood firmly on the truth against a heretical teaching, they were burned at the stake. Some of them had to be burned twice. The fire had to be relit under them because it died down. Can you imagine and yet they held to the truth. They died for the one faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Jesus said, if your life means more to you than my gospel, if you're not willing to follow me even to the cross, you're not my disciples. Luke 14, 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Count the cost. There's a truth that you must follow 
weigh it, measure it. Jesus would say that this gospel, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, is a firm foundation and abundant in wealth and worth. If it is any other gospel, if it is any other truth, any other doctrine, count the cost. It's not solid enough to build on. Are the messages that you're listening to on, on the radio, on YouTube, on the TV, are they solid? Are they so valuable that you would esteem the truth they promote over your family? Do they put forth a truth that you would suffer and die for? I'm saying Jude gives us a, a litmus test, a way to tell, is this, is this worth anything? Would I contend for this? So many people today are being deceived by people who ought to know better. Those teachers who take, they'll take one verse off of this page and maybe a few words off of that page and maybe a line or a sentence or two over here, take it completely out of context and they, they use terrible exegetical processes without regard to what was actually meant by the passages and they string these things together into a whole grand new theology that they dress it up as the Word of God because it sounds like Scripture. Whole generations of people have built their lives on these new Gospels that have enough truth to look good, but they don't offer the whole counsel, the faith that was once for all delivered. That's why people get so shaken when they go through tough times because they've built their houses on foundations that are like quicksand. And when the wind blows and the rain comes, they've got nothing solid to stand on. Christ alone. There are no additives certainly no substitutes. We need to gain a whole new sense of the preciousness of biblical doctrine. I want to impress that upon you this morning. It matters what we think. It matters what is taught. It matters what we believe. That's what James or Jude meant by the faith, the content of the doctrine. We need to know as a church the depth and the beauty and the value of doctrinal truth that is laid out so perfectly in Scripture. Now there are, sure, secondary issues that we might argue over how they might be applied. But the truth is there. The truth is there. There is a faith that is worth contending for, church. A faith that is once for all delivered. I can't begin to overstate the value of this gospel, the value of, of biblical preaching, the value of biblical thinking. We need to go to the Scripture to find out what we ought to think about situations, what we ought to think about matters. What is the Scripture? Not what I think. What does the Bible tell me to think? That is the whole Word of God. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for this this word that you've given us. Thank you that you are righteous in giving it to us, Lord. Help us receive it with, with great humility, Lord. Father, I pray that you impress upon each of us the, a desire to, to know your word, to write it plainly on the tables of our heart. Lord, to, to spend time in your word, to study it, to know it, 
so that when false truths come and when false teachers rise up and when we are tempted to, to believe something that is, that is not biblical or to excuse things in our own lives that are not, are not things that you love, Lord, that, that the truth is staring us in the face. Let it be like a light shining in the darkness for us, Lord. Let us be like the man that James says who looks into the, the perfect law of the Lord and is, is made pure by it. Not like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away unchanged. In Jesus' holy name, amen and amen.